Imagine the cultural transformation that could unfold if all composers made a conscious effort to listen deeply to nature and formulate their own creative response. That is the artist statement of John Rawls, a composer and conductor hailing from the Pacific Northwest. His music often creates a unique blend of nature and politics in a way that both comments and complements the two, urging us to lead by example while acknowledging that not all issues are black and white. His chamber opera, Two Yosemites, puts this relationship on display by telling the story of when John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt met in Yosemite National Park in 1903. Justin has worked with ensembles such as Third Angle Ensemble, Room Full of Teeth, Fear No Music, and San Francisco Conservatory. He has earned degrees from Boston and San Francisco Conservatories, and in the spring of 2020, he earned his PhD in composition from the University of Oregon and is currently an adjunct professor at Linfield University. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Justin. My name is Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. start by asking how you became uh, to be associated with this landscape music network and how you uh, met Nell and, and everybody else. Well, uh, Nell reached out to me. Um, I, I think it was 2012 or 20, I forget, it was a while ago. And I think it was because she, she uh, I forget how exactly she found out about me, but it was something to do with my our mutual interest in Yosemite and John Muir. And uh, we, uh, so she's part, from the Bay Area, partly, and I was studying at uh, SFCM, and I had a couple big kind of pieces that were engaging John, John Muir and the Sierra um, uh, Tree Ride, which is an orchestra piece, and then... Uh, my first opera to Yosemites, uh, which sets the story of John Muir and Theodore Roosevelt in Yosemite National Park. So she, she knew that we, and she's done some work with Yosemite too, with an interactive project. So we connected on that. And I think she, you know, she was just in the beginning phases of, of starting this. And, and I said, absolutely, I'll love to be a part of it. And I'm very grateful because we've had a, several really fantastic concerts because of it. I, I want to, I guess, dive into this opera of yours, Two Yosemites, because this particular meeting of John Muir and, and Teddy Roosevelt is a particular event in history that I'm not familiar with. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about why this, the meeting of these two people is so um, important and what about this relationship is suitable for the the context of an opera? <laughs> it's a great question. Well, the, the quick and dirty is, you know, John Muir founded the Sierra Club, was really kind of the, the modern founder of, of the American environmental movement uh, the con and as a conservation, as an advocacy force. And, uh, but of course, he also was a, 
a, a very spiritual out there mystical figure that re revered nature and um, was very counter to the exploitative capitalist um, extracted, you know, extraction and, uh, and also kind of the, um, the, the, uh, the commodification of nature, even uh, in, in terms of conservation. So at the time, uh, Gifford Pinchot, who was the first um, leader of the Forest Service, uh, that early on, Gif Pinchot and Muir were kindred spirits. But then Muir said, oh, no, we, we should just leave it as it is. And Pinchot says, well, no, we should preserve it for future generations to, to log and mine. And it's a, it's a utilitarian purpose. And Roosevelt and Pinchot were very, very close. And Roosevelt, of course, also was a, a, the greatest uh, president, citizen, scientist since Thomas Jefferson and revered nature in his own way as well. Um, the meeting of the two are really this meeting of uh, these different, the, these kind of different arms of American conservationism in the late 19th century as things are getting gobbled up and the world is quickly changing. And uh, they both realize that if they don't act, it, things are gonna be lost forever. So, uh, Roosevelt takes a, a tour of the West and in 1903, and he asks John Muir to be his guide in Yosemite. He says, I don't want anyone else with me but you. And he uh, shirks away the, the, all the, the big celebration that the California politicians had put on for him, or gonna put on for him in Yosemite, and just goes on this three-day um, trip with John Muir in Yosemite, which is, you know, think of it on a president, you know, ditching a secret service and going with some kooky Scottish guy out in the woods. And it's in this moment that I think that, you know, they, they have, they have, they realize their disagreements, but also their, their similarities. And I feel like symbolically in that exchange, we, we see all of the tensions that are still present today in terms of, you know, are we preserving something for, for use? Um, or, or are we looking at nature and, and a, uh, a non-anthropological, uh, you know, a more reverential um, sense. And so for an opera, I, I see it as kind of a mythological quest where uh, I'm very influenced by the work of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. So if, if and Roosevelt's a very hero-like figure and has, he's a man of the world and a man of, of action and responsibility and power. And he chooses Muir as his sort of spiritual guide, almost like a shaman or something. And in that process, he kind of comes to terms with um, the gravity of, of what's possible and what, um, you know, and, and is challenged. So, you know, after the, their meeting, Theodore Roosevelt uh, proceeded to, to, uh, create the, you know, the largest conservation uh, legacy and still it's unprecedented, you know, five national parks, I think 115 national monuments, uh, hundreds of national forests. I mean, really just changed, um, you know, uh, really civilizations, relation, modern civilizations relationship with the natural world in a big way. And I, I feel like that, um, you know, that the meeting with Muir possibly was a catalyst in that.
it does strike me as also a sort of romantic story in, in two senses, <laughs> these two people sort of uh, accepting each other's, you know, differences, but also coming to this sort of understanding of what, you know, nature can do while nature is the sort of backdrop, which is also romantic in its own way. It's very cool. I would definitely like to check out, you know, the, the whole performance of it. I'll send you a, a, a link or I'll send you, you can, there's excerpts on my website mm -hmm. as well. Um, yes, it is romantic. And uh, it's also two men talking about how they love nature and what they're going to do to it uh, for an hour. And uh, that's a big critique. Um, and, um, you know, what's, what, so what's missing? Well, there's, there's, you know, we're disregarding the fact that, you know, when Yosemite was made a national park, they, they kicked out the Native Americans. Uh, we're disregarding nature itself, you know, national parks and ecosystems themselves as entities that do not uh, subscribe to boundaries, um, you know, as an ecosystem. The, the, big, the big part of that, that opera, though, was Hetch Hetchy. Uh, and the fact that the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which was a smaller uh, version of the larger Yosemite Valley to the north, was uh, sought after by the city of San Francisco to dam and make a reservoir. And that was the big battle um, of Muir's life. And it hadn't been decided yet when he met with Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was sympathetic at first with Muir, but then later with San Francisco uh, as a utilitarian utilitarian purpose um and and so and i was in i've been involved with the modern campaign uh to restore the valley there's a group in san francisco called restore hetch hetchy and and they their mission is to uh undam uh and, and restore that that valley um so we're you know this this legacy is still is still present. Of course, it's a larger legacy of just, um, I would say, uh, exploitation versus, uh, you know, the the leave it as it is, which is a direct uh, Roosevelt quote. But this is all very political and and uh, romantic story. It's not really getting too much into what the actual, you know, what is was the relationship between music and nature. So, so another aspect of the opera is it's supposed to be performed outdoors. So the story, and actually I, and I, my, my bigger plan is to uh, have it be performed at Glacier Point in Yosemite where they actually met. So this is what I'm, what I'd like to get at in my lo my loftier goal is to create a, kind of a ritual performance that blends history, myth, and, um, and our current state, and, and really, you know, engage all of these things in, a, in, a, in an experience that I think that when you are listening to music or watching a story about an environment in that environment, it, it changes it completely. I think any musical experience, when it's in an, a different environment or is engaging nature on that visceral level. Uh, it's just very, very different. And it, it, it ch context is, is incredibly important in that regard. And maybe you've had experiences like that with outdoor concerts. 
Absolutely. Um, I recently there were well the John Luther Adams mm-hmm. piece Anuxa with the, mm-hmm. the giant percussion piece that one has certainly um, helped get a lot of performers out there performing in all these different public um, parks and spaces to try and interact with the community and, and I think that piece is it's a, it's a fairly recent piece too but it seems to mm-hmm. have done a lot of good for um, for some of these communities. You correct me if I wrong, but you also have a a series of like piano solos or piano concerts that were performed outside. Did you write those pieces or? I um, Hunter Nowak, uh, he he does outdoor concerts on a the the, the piano. I just wrote one piece uh, for for him, and it was just one, a premiere, one concert, very special, uh, great concert. Um, but yeah, that's another example. Uh, you know, this is Hunter Nowak is someone that, you know, maybe in your future, maybe it's worth reaching out to. I mean, he, he imagines um, kind of uh, um, reviving kind of the New Deal federal music project where concerts were given, free concerts were given in public lands and theaters and these things. Um, but like, you know, he's like me that he is a avid outdoorsman and loves um, being in nature, but also is, you know, this gifted musician and wants to engage that, how do you combine it? You know, if you're a concert pianist, you're either practicing all the time or you're in some stuffy hall, not all halls are stuffy, but, uh, it wasn't for him. And, and, you know, and also, um, I feel like, you know, it's between you and me, but, you know, maybe, you know, there's some, some artists, you know, maybe he, he wasn't the right fit to be a, a, a touring concert pianist yet. This is an outlet that he can, you know, he's giving concerts in rural communities that rarely hear a nine foot Steinway grand piano, you know, a list piece. So um, it's a kind of a democratizing force. And I feel like concerts when they're, you know, a free concert in, in a park, like the John Luther Adams piece, suddenly contemporary music is being shared exactly with the community. Again, it's a democratizing force It it, it is, subverting so many of the um, barriers that classical music and art music and just music generally since music uh, education and exposure is so low in this in america um that um you know it's not activist music but it is just in its process um so yeah that's so yeah that that piece um that Hunter Nowak played, um, Utah's Who Ceaseless Swell, uh, was inspired by this place in Central Oregon called Fort Rock, uh, which is kind of a natural um, kind of shelter, which was formed when there was a huge in, uh, inland lake in this uh, f- basin of Eastern Oregon, which is now desert, uh, sagebrush desert. Um, but the, this, the walls of this uh, this kind of natural formation were created by the waves lapping up and the indigenous people would take shelter there and fish and do other things around the lake and, and interact. So it was, I just kind of created this kind of evocation that spoke to the natural history of that place. Um, which reminds me, there's a, another piece uh, which is called natural history, which you might be aware of by Michael Gordon that was premiered in Crater Lake National Park. I was there um, 
at that premiere. And that was a, that was a really special concert um, uh, because it also involved uh, indigenous musicians um, from the Kalamath tribe. And uh, that was, it was very similar to John Luther Adams where the audience was surrounded by kind of a battery of percussion and horns and there was a choir here and strings in the center. And, um, you know, the soundscape, the June bugs were humming. There's even some forest fire smoke from a distant fire. That's, that was the other thing too. In fact, when I premiered to Yosemite's, uh, there was a, a very bad uh, fire just east of Portland. And uh, we almost had to cancel, but luckily the smoke cleared just in time. But there was, it was still lingering above us and it's very uncanny, um, you, know, you know, having that, that juxtaposition. Anyway, sorry, I'm just rambling now, but. <laughs> no, please. Okay. <laughs> I'm here for the rambling. That this is kind of you know I, I want it to be as as casual as possible and, and hopefully informative and enjoyable to. Well, I, I want I want you to take away what you need for your research and for your goals. So, well, what uh, one of the one of the questions I've been asking some of the composers, which we've we've already circled around in in our conversations, is just the not only the power. Of, of music as a tool for advocacy, but what about this particular niche of music, this sort of environmentally focused music, um, you know, what, what place it has as a tool for, for advocacy. And, and so I, I want to pick your brain on this subject a little further, but I guess my entryway through this will be asking you about this brief little article you have on your website about w the Green New Deal and... <laughs> Yeah. why it should or how it could possibly also be used to leverage um, artistic initiatives. I'm wondering if you could, you know, expand on some of the ideas that you bring up in this article. Well, you know, we desperately need um, a, cult a cultural transformation and uh, a, a transformation of consciousness. In fact, um, we're going to have it whether we're ready for it or not. And um, there's, there's a, a, a desperate need um, in uh, the communities of the United States in particular, all of probably the West, the West, but in America in particular, because we have, um, we, 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 have su we have such a severe level of um, uh, enemy, of social uh, disintegration really we we don't have a we, our society is is actually in the crumbling i mean we don't have a society we, we can just see this with um the election i'm sure i know you don't need, i don't need to describe it to you everyone's talking about it um but you know so in in the i mentioned this in the article in in the last you know congress they passed one of the largest public lands initiatives in history um and, you know, it was bipartisan. Why, why was that able to happen? Because there's public lands in every single county in this country and people depend upon these places for their health, for their well-being, for their, for everything in a variety of ways. Um, so that's a point where people can get together. And, and I, 
you know, I felt this at Hunter's concert because here there were, you know, uh, tons of different folks from all sorts of parts of Oregon that were congregated in a natural space, um, enjoying the same experience and pondering their, their community. So there's so much opportunity. I mean, we should be having, um, you know, we should be having, uh, and especially now with, and then COVID is another, you know, throw wrench in. Um, we, you know, we can congregate safer outdoors and make music together, perhaps safer outdoors and be with each other in different ways with communal experiences. And this is what music does. It's a communal experience at its best. Um, and so I, I feel like there's a real opportunity for, uh, for, you know, if, if we were going to have this transformation through perhaps something like an actual legislated initiative like the Green New Deal, um, it should mirror what the first New Deal did, which was uh, throw tons of resources at communities, at, uh, at, for artists to work in communities. People don't know this, but so many of our classical institutions, the classical music institutions were founded during this time. Um, which then have now, you know, blossomed and, la and, and been lasted. And um, also there was, during the New Deal, there was unprecedented interest in ethnic and folk musics, which was, which were supported. Uh, and, and so it, it was just this uh, catalyst for cl collaboration. And we need this now. We need this in, this in society, not just culturally and musically, but also in restoring our ecosystems, right? There's so many, so many jobs that could be had restoring ecosystems. And, uh, and, and I feel like when people get together in a project to restore or build something that's better, and then they, they see the results of that, it, 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 it starts to heal those fractured bonds in a society. And so I, I've, I've come to terms with this through mostly studying other cultures, uh, traditional and indigenous cult cultures where uh, music functions as this kind of communal, mutually supportive structure um, between nature, society, and the self. And music is always somewhere in that, is a node in that network. So I think the, for me, the project for music and nature in terms of my own work and perhaps broadly with landscape music is trying to create that node that is connecting culture, humans, ecology, and trying to strengthen it in, in a very similar way. And then in the process, you know, we are, um, we're, you know, we're engaging uh, those, that communal, uh, the, that communal bond as well. That's a lot to unpack <laughs> no, it's it's great um not to not to argue with anything that that you just brought up i i do think it is somewhat important to note that the the earlier new deal and the earlier initiatives that you mentioned in terms of you know funding the arts and funding these these institutions like uh you know museums and other cultural um uh bastions have i think we've we've 
we're beginning to reckon how that has created its own degree of exclusivity and you know marginalized a lot of a lot of people and cultures and i'm wondering far be it for either of us to to you know use this platform to figure out any sort of um tangible you know legislative solutions but i'm wondering uh how can we use music to i guess maybe solve some of these issues um well i i, I think that you 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 have to you, you you have to lead by example uh and you know john luther adams has a, a piece um i forget the name of it but it was performed on either side of the border it was like there was an ensemble in uh on the teal like in I don't, San, not, not san diego but tijuana side and then there was one on the american side and participants both in uh mexico and in the u.s were on either sides of literally the wall hearing this same piece of music and there's other um uh artists that are have done similar work of just in, you know engaging and um you know really subverting uh, the border so for me what is that saying it's saying well the ocean is the same on both sides and the sound is the same on both sides our experience we're experiencing something but here is this fiction this political fiction that separates and for that moment i mean i wasn't there but i can ima I'm imagine i you know i read, read alex ross's wonderful article you don't imagine in that moment the boundaries disappear right and uh i'm i'm think i think about um you know some of the, some marxist thinkers uh guy de board particular uh who wrote in the society of the spectacle that we need he I think, I think he was a situationist where he said we need situations that radically transform uh art environment and society and in so doing we we are given a a, a view of a, a vision of a potential and then so you know not to go too far into it but you know if you if you want to read that into some you know well the only answer to this is we have an eco-socialist global society where borders are porous they're not hard um you know suddenly john luther adams peace uh speaks to that in a very you know actual you know, literal way and we need so you know you're absolutely right about what's happened to classical music and the exclusivity i don't think that's a that's not the fault of the institutions or the music itself though it definitely has um you know it's all a self-referential you know feedback loop which is another thing i'm what, what i'm getting what we're getting at here is that you know why why is it that um you know these classical institutions have become more and more exclusive well so has the economy so has the rest of the society it's all gone retrograde into this neoliberal hyper capitalist um you know greed death cult uh and, and you know and you can probably track that exactly with the you know the fact that the progressive values and agenda of the of the new deal you know worse have just been eroded systematically so we have a democratic party that today would be recognized as the conservative republican party of the 1950s everything has moved 
to the to the right and as our classical institutions have become less democratic more exclusive uh more centered in uh their own market market success or failure um so we have to we have to prove that that's that's just one of many options that there's other things that can be done uh through i think through example so again like back to hunter Nowak's concert it's you know that shows that it's that it's not exclusive that lots of people that you know all it needs is so, someone to do it and then someone to, to to lend us just a meet halfway and support it um and see the and, and and decide as a society that, that that's a value and that's exactly the same it's a parallel in in conservation and nature as well you know if there's people that will do it and there's other people that will say this is a value that we want to fight for and preserve um so the the the, the fight for uh I, i'm i'm increasingly seeing the the fight for eco uh a, fully full social political economic and ecological equality are all linked and uh music and musical uh activity on the behalf of the practitioners artists institutions can really provide an example of how all of those things are are together and I, we're seeing it it's it's i mean it's it's blowing up i i've since i've started this process um you know, so many new articles, so many new composers, so many new institutions are engaging this eco eco musicology, eco music, um, or environmental. I I focus more on ecology because I, environmentalism is more of a cultural and historical um, thread, whereas an ecology is sort of a, a kind of a foundational truth that we all live in, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with everything you're saying. Um, I want to I want to back up for for a moment and just talk a little bit about your sort of musical education and upbringing. Um, so you studied with people like Delete Warshaw, um, Robert Keir, uh, yeah. David Crum. Yeah. And these are all folks that we actually talked about in this class. Um, and we listened to some of their music and everything. And, and Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm interested to, to hear what it's like to work with some of these composers. Uh, well, every, everybody is a little bit different. Um, and um, is, uh, you know, I've, I've had, uh, been very fortunate to work with many many composers and teachers and and there's some folks that um have you know that i've been kind of a mentee um that maybe are, i don't maybe are not in my my bio or I, it wasn't a, it wasn't formal in an institution so um but you know well, i think um well delete warshaw particularly because i, I studied her was with her my very first year uh, of undergraduate at the boston conservatory um was she uh was it was she was very much um uh, 
kind of a mentor of, of orchestration and just the creative spirit of a composer. And, um, uh, you know, she, she was, uh, a, a prod prodigy and a very gifted, um, uh, thereminist and has perfect pitch. She would be able to, she could take, you could take her, take a score to her and she'd be able to hear it, you know, just looking at it. So, you know, kind of as a, as a, uh, as an exam, an exemplar of uh, just uh, you know the, a top musician, someone is just really you know something to aspire to. Like wow, there's people like this out there that I can learn from. Uh, and Robert Keir, kind of to come, kind of come full circle. Um, you know, a lot of these I, my ideas, kind of that I'm about music and society and as a citizen deeply influenced by Robert Keir's work. Um, and, uh, I feel like when you asked, Oh, you know, what, how you solve the problem? And I said, we well, worry by example, you do it, you realize it. That comes straight from, from his, uh, what, what he's about and what he does in his work. And of course he's engaged nature, um, a lot in his own work and all, all of these concepts, um, and particularly, uh, he's, you know, he's most active in choral, um, which I think is kind of telling, right? Because the choral, um, uh, that aspect is, is quite inclusive um, as a genre and also very intimate and meaningful for, I think, people. Um, so I feel like, and also it's an embodiment, you know, music is a mo most embodied, though I would say it, we human beings are the most musical and embodying body music in the voice and percussion. Uh, and, and if you, and the, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, back to my background, I was a percussionist. I was a, a jazz drummer and just drummer. And um, most recently I've kind of got into African drumming and I was in an African ensemble and worked with a um, great uh, Ghanaian drummer, Habib Idrisu. Uh, you know, which is an oral tradition, right? I, I show up to rehearsal and he plays it and I got to copy it, you know, and it's like, we learned it that way. But of course I, I saw that, you know, there's so many similarities. It was like, oh, this is where all of my jazz rhythms were coming from. You know, this is one of the sources in, in, in Africa or the, that uh, exchange. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the teachers, so I, again, teachers are, are examples of more than anything. What you, I feel like what I learned from teachers is that there is like, this, they're, they're, they're living proof that what you're doing is validated and that there's some, there's a job or a so social function at the end of it that, um, and that, you know, one thing Robert Keir told me, I'll never forget. And he was speaking of the composer, Lou Harrison, who I'm sure you know. Um, he said, and he met Lou Harrison later in life, and he said, and Lou Harrison told him that, you know, even in his 80s, you never stop, um, you never stop hustling, you never stop trying to get performers, getting the gigs, you know, getting this new experiences, that, that um, there's never an end point, the end, the, it's process. Um, and I feel like that, that is a, perhaps been a point of tension, right, in our musical culture where we tend to value product over process. We value talent 
talent and celebrity and skill over community participation or um, our own subjective experiences with music. Um, it's we, we really live in a, a colonized musical landscape um, in a lot of ways where we are um, regular, just regular people are often uh, denied um, meaningful musical experience because we, they've been told that you have to be a certain way in order to, to make music. And I think this has not, not always been true. Um, and particularly in America, um, you know, I think probably prior to the early 20th century, pianos were very common in all homes and people uh, made music together and also they made music in church. And uh, to further um, uh, cement my argument, it was, it's actually, there's actually an argument to be made that a lot of the progressivism that we saw in the New Deal was the result of communal religious and civic organizations which flourished in the late 19th century. Um, so, you know, these things, so I, I guess uh, all of these things are related and uh, certainly Robert Keir uh, kind of through just his practice and the, the Oregon Bach Festival Composers Symposium, which uh, is again is a is another example of kind of a of a musician ecosystem where people are encouraged to frantically create music like it's your last day on earth and improvise with each other, listen to each other. Um, you know, it's like eighty composers all together for two weeks. We did seventy premieres. Uh, one of the one of the summers, and you know, it's just you you live, you 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 live music, or he says that you wage music. Um, it's it's powerful. It's something that you want to share with others. I feel like everyone has the ability to compose and improvise and create music at a high level. Uh, they just need to be empowered. Yeah, thank you. I all of that was was really beautiful and you you mentioned the the ecosystem of of musicians and composers coming together and and writing music as if it was you know the sort of the last moment they had to do so i noticed in your bio also that you participated in stephen lias's living yes. in the wilderness seminar very very similar well i i already got a chance to interview him and talk to him about that um that he's wonderful he absolutely, he was absolutely he, delight. He, he is a real visionary uh, and a unsung hero uh, in contemporary music and his vision and what he's created um, is amazing. And I was really lucky to be part of the very first one, which I was very, very early on in my thinking. Um, but again, it, you know, we had these very same conversations, maybe a little less sophisticated because I didn't know anything then. I still don't know anything, but... <laughs> but you know it's yeah it's it's um it comes out of this thing where you know I, we're all i feel like just as a composer we're kind of especially you know a middle class white guy like me i was kind of funneled through to you know i'll go pursue go to college study music and then it, when i was in boston 
I was like, this is all, you know, I was listening, I was listening to all this avant-garde music and all these ensembles and I'm just like, what's going on? Like, this is just not what I was, I don't know, this is what it, what it was about for me. And, and I, I would always go home in the summer back to Oregon and I would do what I always do. I go hiking, backpacking, doing my thing. And it wasn't until um, maybe my, my last year of my undergrad that I, and I saw Ken Burns documentary on John Muir and I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. It just, it just hit me. And I was like, I couldn't let it go. And I, how, you know, and it took me a couple more years to figure out how to meld the, my experience with nature and my, my passion for the natural world with my passion for music and what how those two can offer. And when I came across the composer in the wilderness was right around that time when I was like putting it all together. And uh, the fact that he was doing that and bringing other people showing that it was like validating. And it was like, Oh, this is a thing. And, uh, um, and now it's just blown up. I mean, now it's what, what, I, so that should be something that is ubiquitous, right? Around the country. Um, and that, that, that exact kind of thing, can, you don't have to go to Alaska to, to have, you know, you could, you, there's, you know, you could go to um, a, a nature conservancy prairie, you know, right in Kansas and, and have, ex well, not the same experience, but the, the same in creative engagement. Um, yeah. Well, one of the, one of the other questions I've been, asking pretty much everybody and i think this, this is a good maybe note to to sort of start to uh wrap up i'm i'm curious to know or i guess to get your your opinion on how our conception of place and our spaces both indoor and outdoor um in the wake of of what what COVID has has done to sort of radically you know upset our previous conceptions of these these things uh, I'm wondering what how you see it going forward well I think uh, every disruption is a huge opportunity and um, I think it only I mean I was really happy to see so many activities moved outdoors um, I think that there's a, a large metaphor with uh, the coronavirus that it is um, challenging our relationship with nature and really humbling the whole civilization and uh you know specifically for the performing arts um suddenly what was what was considered kind of a, a sort of out of the box niche thing of having to do an outdoor concert now becomes on everyone's agenda of what we're of what to do and i i and and, and it's just i think so i think in that sense it it is really spurring in a positive innovation and a rethinking of the way we make music, right? This is, we're just talking about the way we make music with each other. And um, it's so, you know, COVID has challenged that um, and challenged our, our, our sense of, of environment and, and space uh, and places. And I hope that that, um, that, that complements and, and keeps and so keeps supporting mutually supports um, kind of the, you know, the eco music threads that are developing 
uh, all over the world, but in, in America as well. And I think that it will own that this, these trends um, hopefully will only continue um, as long as there are the, the grassroots forces that are, that are trying to do this, this work. The larger forces uh, are, are uh, formidable. Uh, the challenges of economy and now climate change and ecological crisis. Uh, I think that this the crisis element really cannot be understated enough because um, we're not just making music in different spaces. We're making music in spaces that are changing before our eyes and our, before our ears. And um, so that's why I, I'm more convinced now than ever that um, that these what we're you know the, what we're seeing in the beginnings of say the landscape project or is um, our, our kind of portents to to future cultural trends and future um, it's I'm, you know maybe I'm just you know tuning my own horn here a little bit. Uh, but, but I think that uh, it, it's, it's proven to be so in, in terms of what we've seen with COVID and, and folks' response and also the positive response that people have had. So it really is, a, it's, a, it's a leader. It's a, it's a kind of a, a talisman of what's, what's pointing um, ahead. Um, and it, it will be a tonic to uh, a lot of a lot of the, uh, the you know the challenges that will come from cultural and uh, ecological crisis that we're experiencing and will continue to experience. I I couldn't agree more with that. Um, well, Justin, thank you so much for for taking the time out to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your interest in uh, doing this great work. You're part of this process. And um, uh, please let me know if you, uh, you wanna, if you wanna use my music or anything in, the, in a podcast, I absolutely give permission. Just you know, let me know, I'll send you files or whatever. Happy to do it. I'd love you know, to collaborate or be involved in any way you, I could be of service. It's really, uh, important work what you're doing mm -hmm. thank you i appreciate that yeah i'll definitely uh...